It's good to see you all. But uh, five to eight in with us this morning. Good to have some children in, even though it means Sunday school's not on. But five to eight, who's around? What's your favourite equipment at the playground? What's your favourite piece of equipment at the playground? Anybody? Anyone got a favourite bit of equipment in the playground? Imogen? Monkey bars. Monkey bars. Yes, Eby. You like the monkey? Everyone likes the monkey bars. Asa? Monkey bars too. We've got a lot of monkeys here. Um, I don't know, but if you're my age, it's a fair while since I was young enough to enjoy the monkey bars. A bit hard on the shoulders now. Have you noticed how playgrounds have evolved over the years? Like they're all colourful, there's climbing walls and forts and um, you know, rope ladders and all this sort of stuff now and very safe bark or rubbery stuff to land on. Back in my day it was grass and dirt and in the middle of summer it was as hard as concrete. And if I was lucky, you know, all it was was galvanised poles and a few bits of timber. That was a playground. Um, if we were lucky, my dad would take us to St Kilda, the adult playground, where everything was bigger and faster and a bit more dangerous. Every now and then we went down there. Once I think we went to Monash, if that was a famous playground there. But our local council playground, we had the mandatory swings. We had a merry-go-round thing where we learnt centripetal force and didn't even know what we were learning. Um, and if you, all got, if you got really fast and got everyone to try to get on the inside, it went faster and faster and faster. That was a lot of fun. Then we had the slippery dip, of course, which always tried to hit the person at the bottom if they're still there and go down in threes or on your tummy. And we had the seesaw. The humble seesaw. You don't see a lot of seesaws around these days. You see some springy things, but not a lot of seesaws. Just a plank of timber on a rail in the middle, and if you're lucky, it had a, some handles and a seat on the end. The problem with, or maybe the joy rather than the problem with a seesaw, is you needed someone else to really enjoy it, didn't you? Someone preferably of about the same weight and size as you. Um, I was lucky enough to have two brothers. We often go up to the playground. If we weren't out on the tennis court or playing front yard cricket, uh, we'd go up to the playground. And as young boys are prone to do, especially siblings, um, on the seesaw particularly, uh, you'd have a lot of fun, wouldn't you? Either trying to launch your brother up as high as he could um, so he'd actually come off his seat, or if you were clever enough and you're at the bottom and you could get away quick enough without the thing flicking up and giving yourself an uppercut in the chin, uh, you'd get off and he would come down so quick he'd, he'd land on his backside uh, before he knew it. That's what we did anyway. And if you're on your own, you'd try to stand in the middle and balance it, wouldn't you? There was lots of fun, a few bumps and bruises along the way, um, just with a few pieces of timber and pipe and the basic laws of physics. What goes up must come down. What we learn today in the second chapter of 1 Samuel is that those basic laws of physics apply not only in playgrounds, but in kingdoms, in God's kingdom in particular. When I say law there, I don't mean commandments, I mean the principles at work, particularly the ones in the humble seesaw. Hannah's prayer that Scott read for us describes and declares to us the principles of the kingdom of God. God raises up the lowly and he brings down the proud and the arrogant. The birth of Samuel that we heard of last week provides for us a perfect example, doesn't it, of one who was once low, poor and needy, Hannah, without children, being taunted and teased by her rival, Penina, 
the Lord remembers her and raises her up. She has a child. She rejoices. That's the prayer we have this morning. The Lord remembered her and raised her up. She's no longer barren. And Eli's sons, we've only had a snippet of that for the sake of time. It's, I encourage you to read all of chapter 2 when you get home today because you actually get a bit more detail there. Eli's sons are the other end of the seesaw though. As Samuel is raised up, as he's born and is raised up, the high, lofty, proud and arrogant boys that are in the priesthood, being a bit naughty as, <laughs> as um, Scott mentioned to us, more than naughty, they're defiling the Lord and his presence. And the Lord brings them down. What goes up must come down. Except here in God's playground, in God's kingdom here on earth, it's not the constant force of gravity at work. This is not simple cause and effect. This is the Lord himself at work bringing about his sovereign purposes. Raising up the humble and bringing down the proud. The whole book of 1 Samuel actually um, revolves around three main sections, each of which have this dynamic at work. We just heard the first one, the rising up of Samuel and the downfall of Eli's sons and the priesthood there. Chapter 8, we have the rise of Saul as king, which is really the downfall of Israel as they reject the Lord as king. And then from chapter 13 onwards, we have the rise of David as king, which coincides with the downfall of Saul because he's too caught up with himself and his own reputation to be faithful and obedient to the law. And so Hannah's prayer here in chapter 2 actually functions a bit like a contents page or a lens through which to read the rest of the book, telling us what's, what's about to happen and why we're seeing it happen, why this rise and fall dynamic all through history, all through Samuel. Well, it's because it's the Lord's ways. It's the way of the kingdom as the Lord is weaving his sovereign plan and purposes for the nations through his chosen nation, Israel, and ultimately through his anointed king, Messiah, which in the first instance refers to Saul, then David, and then ultimately to Jesus. As I said, this is no simple matter of cause and effect. My brother goes up, I go down. It's not just that happening. This is the Lord... Yes, working through people and nations and their whims and wills and won'ts, but the Lord always has his hand on the wheel. We saw that abundantly clearly, didn't we? In verse 25, Eli's sons, we'll hear a bit more about them in a while, but they've been not just naughty, they've been holding the Lord in contempt as well as his people and his sanctuary. And they would not listen to the voice of their father, verse 25, for because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, it's not that they had any intent to listen to the voice of their father, but together with their own will is the Lord's action against them to put them to death because they're dishonouring him. Nothing happens without the Lord's purpose being played out. Let's take a look at this song, this prayer of Hannah's, and see how she describes and declares this dynamic in action. Remembering last week, the Lord's um, remembered her, given her Samuel as a son, and she's fulfilled her vow, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And so she's lent or dedicated her son Samuel to the Lord at the end of chapter 1, and she now sings this song of praise. And it's quite a song of praise, isn't it? We heard from Hannah's lips last week, or we, Eli didn't hear it, he saw Hannah praying deeply from her heart in her distress, in her grief. This is another heartfelt prayer from Hannah. 
But this time the tears that are flowing are tears of joy as the Lord has remembered her. And she exalts, she tells us, in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, perhaps a reference to Panina, because I rejoice in my salvation. But as we heard that being read, did you notice there's something missing in that whole prayer? The birth of Samuel doesn't even get a mention. That's, that's why she's praying this song of praise, why she's rejoicing. But the birth of a son doesn't get a mention. She rejoices in the Lord's salvation, her deliverance, which I think does include the giving to Hannah of her son. But her praise, which tells her also her perspective then, her vision captures far more than her own predicament, which is very different for how it is for us today, isn't it? We are so individual, we are so navel-gazing in our ways. Often our perspective and our vision doesn't go much further than our front door. Hannah's goes out far and wide, both in what she prays for and what she gives thanks for. And throughout this series, throughout this book of Samuel, we actually see that the Lord favours those who, or those who are faithful to the Lord that the Lord favours, actually have a kingdom perspective. They don't just look at what's in front of them. They look at what God is doing, what he has done in the past and what he will do in the future. They have a kingdom perspective. They don't just look at the obvious, at how things appear. Their vision is much deeper and further and wider and higher than that. In fact, it's one of the pivotal verses in the entire book. Crops up in chapter, what is it, chapter 14? I can find it. I won't try to find the verse. It's, when, it's not 14, it's later on. When David's anointed as king, 16. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's how the Lord sees. And what we'll find through this whole book of Samuel is that those who trust the Lord actually see with a similar vision. They don't just look at appearances. Hannah's not just looking at appearances. She's looking at matters of the heart and far beyond her own situation. In her prayer, you'll notice verse 1, My heart exalts, my horn is exalted, my mouth, I rejoice. But then from verse 2 onwards, it's corporate. It's no longer about her, no longer about her situation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She sees herself as one of God's covenant people. That's why she can trust in God's faithfulness, because she's one of his amongst many. It's not just about her. And then beyond verse 2, it goes to a more corporate and general word of admonition, addressing anyone who will hear from verse 3 onwards. Talk no more so very proudly. And talks about the mighty and the humble, far wider than her own predicament. Her prayer here captures something more than her own situation, actually captures the situation of Israel. And it's a word to God's own people. The Lord has revealed to her out of her own situation how he works across the nations. This is who the Lord is and who is, what his character is like. And she bears witness to that out of her own situation, declaring God's sovereign power and his schemes, particularly this notion of how he raises up the lowly and brings down the proud. All the way to the salvation of Israel, his people, even ultimately to the rising up and anointing of a king to come, well before the people have even thought about asking 
for a king. And I don't think this perspective of Hannah's is a one-off. Last week, as we heard her pray in her deep distress and bitter weeping, that too was a prayer based on God's faithfulness to the nation beforehand. Not just to her. She knows her story. She knows her history. She knows she's one of God's covenant people. For example, back in Egypt, when the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, we read in Exodus 3, the Lord saw the affliction of his people and he heard their cry. It's almost the exact words that Hannah uses in her prayer here. O Lord of hosts, will you indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me? She knows what God has done for her people in the past, his faithfulness, his saving mercy. And so she says, will you do that for me as one of your servants? It's one of the reasons why it's so important to teach our children, isn't it? The story of God all the way through. God has been faithful in the past so we can trust him now and we can trust him with what we don't know in the future. If we only ever start with ourselves, we've got no history. We've got no record of God's faithfulness to us. Being part of God's covenant people gives us a story, an assurance of God's faithfulness. And we need to tell our children that. The world doesn't just start with their generation as much as they might like to think it does as they grow up. And most of us, when we go through certain years teenage years and a bit older we tend to think we want to cut off from our previous generation don't we even cut ourselves off from our parents there's someone in the news this week who's wanted to cut herself off from her biological parents change their name just want to start again start afresh no history which means what i'm going to create my own identity my own story my own history i'm going to be the author of my own life that's what they were doing in acts wasn't it trying to kill the author of life Nothing's changed. But we have a story. We have a history and that history gives us hope for the future because God is faithful and he doesn't change. Hannah herself is performing the role of the prophet here. She doesn't know the full extent of her own words, not in the immediate extent of them. (laughs) There's going to be a, a king, Saul, and then David. And her son's going to play a key role in, the, in that development, but also in the long-term fulfilment as those words are fulfilled in Christ. Just as there's a structure to the book, there's a structure to Hannah's prayer. She begins by praising God for his strength and salvation, the first few verses, rejoicing in the Lord and the strength that he gives her and his strength. When you see the word horn there, if you've got the word horn in your version, think strength. It's like like an animal with a horn who uses it to attack and defend. It's the strength. My strength exalts in the Lord. My horn exalts in the Lord. He's the one who gives her strength and endurance, hope and salvation. She's got no place to boast in herself. She hasn't been able to bring about her son. The Lord has. It's all gift. And then the large section in the middle is where she praises God for the way he humbles the proud and exalts the lowly, this seesaw effect, this reversals, these reversals that the Lord affects. And her words really are a warning to us all. It's not just telling us this is how God works, it's a warning to us. Talk no more so very proudly, verse 3. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Don't be boastful and proud. You've got nothing to boast about. If you've got much, as Nat was sharing with us, it's all from the Lord. He's blessed us richly. 
Don't be boastful. Don't be proud about that. Give thanks. And although Hannah, in my mind, doesn't come across to me as the vindictive type, there is no doubt some reference here to her rival Penina, who used to taunt her for having no children. Those who are full, she says, have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven. Hannah didn't quite get to seven. She had six children that we know of. But she who has many children is forlorn. Penina, perhaps her own pride and arrogance, has been replaced with pity and a sense of abandonment. But in keeping with the seesaw analogy, this is not only a warning to the proud and arrogant, the self-made men and women of the day, it's actually an encouragement to the poor and the needy and the lowly. It's teaching us to be humble and in that humility not to give up hope. Maybe you're feeling distressed or downtrodden like Hannah was. Maybe you feel very needy, praying in bitterness and weeping and really wanting the Lord to raise you up. Don't give up hope. The Lord raises up the poor from the dust of the earth. The hungry and the barren are fed and they bear children. The poor are made rich as he lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. And all of this is the work of the Lord. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth. The pillars of the earth are his. If he created the world and sustains the universe, including all the gravity at work in our playgrounds, surely raising up a few and bringing down a few, not too hard for him. It's his way. Not only, not only in Hannah's life here, it's his way always and forever. God has a way of working which turns the way of the world and the flesh and the devil upside down. Jesus said something similar, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're rich. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Whoever exalts himself, Jesus said, will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's what, exactly what Hannah's saying here. Paul reminds us the same, doesn't he? It's in weakness that God's power is made perfect. What's the world telling us? We've all got to be strong. We've all got to make our way and get to the top and squash anyone or get rid of anyone, toxic relationships that might pull us down. It's not the way of the kingdom. It's not the way of God's kingdom children shouldn't be and of course we see it most wonderfully in the cross of Christ himself the king of kings where Jesus humbled himself and made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant meekness and majesty we've just sung becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore God highly exalted him he raised him up and seated him at the right hand with a name far above any name. This is the way of the kingdom of God because it's actually the way of the king. And so it's the way of all his children because he promises to do the same for us, to raise us up 
and exalt us in Christ, all who turn to him in faith and repentance. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Do you know that verse? It's interesting because it goes on, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. One of the ways we humble ourselves before God is to cast all our anxieties onto him rather than thinking we can fix them all ourselves, rather than thinking worrying about tomorrow is going to make tomorrow better. We can't add another hour, can we? So we can see this prayer is not just for Hannah, is it? It's not just for her day, it's for us today. This is indicative and instructive of how the Lord deals with all his beloved, with all Israel and all the church. And not just the church, but also his those who do boast in themselves, those who reject the Lord and think they can do it in their own strength. Because what does he say to them? What does Hannah say for those who defy the gravity of the Lord's kingdom? They will not prevail. might look like they do for a while, but they don't. Hannah praises the Lord at the end from verse 9 for his righteous judgments. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord, they shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. He will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the strength of his anointed. And with those final words, almost teasing the readers, Hannah rejoices in and anticipates a coming king through whom the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. What do you mean, a king? What do you mean his anointed, Hannah? You can imagine the early readers thinking, who is this king? As I said, in the immediate context, she's referring to the coming king, not even on the scene yet. When Israel asks for a king, they're given Saul and then David. But in the long-term context, it's Christ himself. He's the one who will judge the nations. He's the one to whom the Father gives strength. Remembering that Christ is not actually his name, it's his title. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is his title. He is the anointed. He is the Messiah. For Hannah, in her life, there's been a significant and tangible change in her circumstances, hasn't there? For years she was without a child, barren, being taunted and provoked by Penina. Now she has a child. Now she can rejoice. There's been an immediate response from God. Although, as we saw last week, what we see as immediate has actually been a long time coming, hasn't it? Year after year, she's been praying. And I shared a little last week, sometimes our own prayers, our own distresses, they're not resolved immediately, are they? Do we always see this seesaw effect at work? Do we see the high and lofty being brought down? Not always. Sometimes they seem to win day after day. And sometimes our situation, we feel like we're down in the bottom in the pit of despair and we can't get up. It seems never-ending. It seems impossible. It appears to be hopeless. But remember, appearances can be deceiving. Are we looking at what things appear to be or what things really are in God's scheme? Hannah herself didn't always see the seesaw principle at work. Her tears, her prayer, her faith has been wrought out 
not just in her immediate experience, but over a whole lifetime of God's faithfulness as well as her own suffering, of her history, her people's history, as well as her present and her hope for the future. Sometimes we might join with the psalmists. How long, O Lord? Do you know Psalm 73? Let's join, uh, we might join with Asaph who writes that psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, I know this, he's good to the pure in heart. This is what he knows. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. Why? Not because I wandered off and did the wrong thing. No, because I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the proud and the lofty and the wicked, I saw how they prospered. I slipped and stumbled. I almost gave up. He almost loses faith in God because he knows the Lord is good to those who trust him, but he's seeing those who don't trust him better than good. (laughs) They're amazing. They're prospering. They don't even have any health problems. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're proud and arrogant. They curse God, yet they seem to have wealth beyond measure, health and comfort as well, and they make sure everyone knows about it. They even mock God, and God doesn't seem to care. They seem to get away with it. And some people around him are saying, why bother? Why can't I just follow suit? If the Lord's meant to be good to me and this is where I am, they're not being good to the Lord. Look where they are. It'd be better to join them. And he says, no, no, if I said that, I'd be doing a wrong thing for my people. I would have betrayed this generation. But people are saying, doesn't God see what's going on? But Asaph reminds them, no, the ways of God are perfect. He is just and he is incomparable and immutable. He doesn't change. The ways of his kingdom remain the same. And that includes his patience and his slowness to anger. I don't know if you've picked up, but just in this last week, there's been two major global events or announcements that are affecting history. In the swimming international swimming area there's been a decision about gender diversity and how that's going to play out that's going to have major impacts in the coming weeks and months years and then in the u.s the decision from the supreme court about abortion and what that means for them 50 years it took for that legislation to be reversed the lord's not slow as we consider slowness he's at work we need to be patient as he is And we need to keep praying in hope. This seesaw effect doesn't always happen immediately. Sometimes if you're clever enough with your brother at the other end, you can sit down the bottom and just not let it move, can't you? No, the Lord is not slow as we might consider slowness. He's patient, not wishing that any should perish. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when Asaph considered these things, when he sought to understand them, he went to the place of the Lord to hear the ways of the Lord and discern them. And there he discerned the end of the wicked. Their wealth, their health, their prosperity, it won't last. If they don't turn to the Lord, he will bring them down. But that's actually not the end of Asaph's psalm. That's not where our joy or assurance lies or what the lesson is, nor is it the end of Hannah's prayer or the lesson of Hannah's prayer. The resolution in Asaph's psalm is not only that God's ways will prevail, that the wicked, proud and arrogant are brought down a notch or three, 
and there we finally get vindicated. No, it's actually far more personal and reflective than it is vindictive. Just as Hannah doesn't have finish her prayer with a na-na-na-na-na to Panina, like you might in the playground, she actually finishes with a declaration of a king who will judge the nations. He will guard those who are faithful to the end. And Asaph concludes his psalm, when my soul was embittered, when I was envious of those wicked, those arrogant, those with all the money and everything else and their health, when my heart was pricked, I was brutish and arrogant myself. I was like a beast towards you, towards the Lord. You see, the trouble for Asaph and all of us, and I'm sure Hannah had some moments where she looked at Penina the same way, if only I could be like that. It's the trouble's not that we might wander off and start to do our own thing. That is a danger, absolutely. But the greater danger before we wander off is that we might become bitter towards God when we see how the wicked prosper, when we see the lofty and proud and arrogant still at the top. We will get angry and bitter at God. That's what happens with the sideways glance, isn't it? Jealousy, bitterness and strife. Wisdom, not from above. Our bitterness towards the proud and arrogant ends up being bitterness towards God himself. We become like a beast, like a brute towards God. Thank the Lord for Asaph and what the Lord revealed to him and for Hannah. Let's not let that happen to us, to our hearts. And Hannah here gives us a wonderful example and instruction to follow the testimony of the Lord and his ways. That we can trust him. She waited and prayed and waited and prayed and prayed and waited for years and then waited and prayed some more. But she trusted the Lord. Like Asaph, she knew the end of his psalm, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Long-term kingdom perspective. Who do I have apart from you, Lord? Though my flesh and my heart fail, God is the strength of my heart. Sounds a bit like Hannah's words, doesn't it? Those who are far from you will perish. But for me, it is good to be near God. Don't go and try to join those who are proud and arrogant and prospering in their wickedness, because in the end they will perish. For us, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Why? So that I can be comfortable? So that I can get all the... No, that I may tell of all your works. That's what Hannah's doing here. She's made God her refuge and she's telling of his works and teaching us the need for patience, the need for a kingdom perspective and for kingdom prayers. Again, how long did she have to wait for her prayers to be answered? How long, O Lord? How much patience? But she also teaches us there's a king who will come. He will bring down the proud and the arrogant and he will raise up the humble and the poor. Hannah herself was waiting for a son. 
and her prayer speaks of the salvation that comes in the giving of that son. How much longer would it be before that king would appear? Some years in Samuel. Some years. And then there's another king who has come, isn't there? Christ has come. And we, standing on this side of the cross, we've got 2020 hindsight vision. We see the fulfilment of Hannah's prayer. So we've got a history with all the more reason to have hope for today and the future, don't we? One of the speakers, if I can get it right, um, we met for Winter Word last week. Um, Suki Yong said, um, quoted something of Tim Keller's that says, God hasn't just given us a hope for the future. He's given us a hope from the future today. He's brought something from the future in the now and the not yet to us today in Christ. Our lives are hid with him. I don't know about you, I can still remember as I grew up and the far, something of the fatherhood of God opened up to me. And as I came to know God as father, that meant I was a child of his with the full rights of being a son of God. How much higher can he raise us up than that? And he has. And there's glory to come when we will know nothing but the riches of that. Hannah, her king, is still some way off. And we still, some way off, Christ will come again, won't he? We still have that hope. And she goes on in faithfulness and love towards the Lord and towards his gifts to her. As she goes week by week, we didn't read it, um, but later on in chapter 2, every year she goes, she visits her boy. He's away from home from a young age. And she goes year after year and she gives him a cloak. She makes him a cloak. Obviously, he's growing. He needs a new one each year. And they went there each year for their yearly sacrifice. And they went with Eli's blessing. And we're told not only that each year he grew out of his robe and needed a new one, but he grew in the presence of the Lord. And all of that, we could open up the rest of the chapter, but we're not because we're going to run out of time. But that little bit there about Samuel growing in the presence of the Lord is smack bang in the middle of what's happening with Eli and his sons. They're taking the fat from the offerings that are given to God even before they're offered to the Lord. They're being rude and arrogant to those that are bringing sacrifices. They're sleeping with the women who are serving at the temple. And if you read that and you hear about the downfall of pastors, whether they're mega churches or not so mega churches today, you would wonder, wouldn't you, what is the Lord doing in his own household? Well, that's where judgment begins, isn't it? But in the middle of all of that, if you read through chapter 2, you get these little things about Samuel growing in the presence of the Lord, hearing the word of the Lord, speaking the word of the Lord. There is always this word of hope that comes. The seesaw is tipping. As God raises up Samuel, a faithful servant of his, who's going to speak his word and judge his people, and he'll bring down those who think they're getting away with their proud and lofty ways. It's not just in playgrounds, is it, that what goes up must come down. The Lord brings low the arrogant and the proud, those who refuse to honour him and give thanks to him, thinking they've done it all and gained it all by their own strength. Their end is far from glorious. And he raises up the poor from the dust 
lifting them up, exalting the humble who look to him for their strength, gives them strength and seats them with princes, the full rights of sons. Their end is glorious beyond compare. That's our end as we continue to trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, our hearts exalt in you as Hannah's did that day. Our strength is exalted in the Lord. Our mouths deride our enemies because we rejoice in your salvation, Father. There is none holy like you, Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. You, O Lord, will judge the ends of the earth. You will give strength to his king, to your king and exalt the horn of your anointed, Jesus himself, in whose name we pray. Amen.